Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Autumn is in the air. You can see it everywhere. Leaves turning on the trees, new shows on TV, a welcome relief from the long, hot summer. But autumn also brings a new session of the United States Supreme Court, a session which could bring a reconsideration of Roe versus Wade, the landmark ruling making abortion legal for women. This morning, Rita Braver will be looking at what's at stake for both sides. Abortion is violent! Abortion is violent! My body, my choice! Ever since it came down almost 50 years ago, there's been controversy over the Supreme Court's landmark decision finding a constitutional right to abortion. Now... They're either getting ready to overturn it or to limit it Later on Sunday morning, what's ahead for the ruling in Roe versus Wade? David Pogue explains why two words rarely used before, supply chain, are suddenly cropping up everywhere. About 95% of everything you own came to America in containers like these. But as the holidays approach, you might be wondering, where's my stuff? I order Gatorade. It took weeks to get Gatorade. And they say, oh, we had a shortage. This is nothing. This is less than one-tenth of a typical ship that we have in the Port of New York and New Jersey every day. Coming up on Sunday morning, how do we fix the broken links in the supply chain? Olivia Rodrigo skyrocketed to fame this past year on a string of hits. Tracy Smith caught up with the young singer-songwriter and found her to be wise beyond her years. Olivia Rodrigo has a talent for turning pain into poetry. You betrayed me And I know that you'll never feel sorry It's that sort of anger and like betrayal that's so angry but also just like so deeply sad. And for you, you're okay with that sharing that vulnerability with the world. Yeah, I think I have no choice. The phenomenal Olivia Rodrigo, later on Sunday morning. You may know Billy Porter as a fashionista of the first order, but as our Seth Doan discovered, there's a lot more to his story than that. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. People have been stopping their cars. Spend a few moments with Billy Porter and you realize he has a lot going on. There's a strength, there's a power, there's a joy. A rage. I'm fabulous and I'm serious. I will never be silenced. I will never shut up. I'm a storyteller at heart. Billy Porter finds his voice ahead on Sunday morning. Anthony Mason checks out the gold guitar that rocked the world. Martha Teichner talks with co-authors and good friends, Hillary Clinton and Louise Penny on a pandemic partnership. Plus, Steve Hartman and more on this Sunday morning for the 10th of October, 2021. We'll be back.
after this. From Tonka trucks for Christmas, to furniture for the living room, to delays of all kinds of products from around the world, blame it on the supply chain. So what's going on here? Sounds like a question for David Pogue. We start off in here, come on in. We're gonna need a case of lemons, so let's hope that they got lemons tomorrow. Life's not giving lemons to Tony Pertessis, who owns and runs the Southport Diner in Connecticut. And not just lemons. You order Heinz, it's not here. I order Gatorade. It took weeks to get Gatorade. The waitress will come out and say, I don't know where the whipped butter is. I'll call my distributor and say, what happened to the whipped butter? They'll say, oh, we're out of stock till next week. And when he can get his hands on supplies, he pays a lot more for them. Used to buy bacon for $2.40 a pound. It spiked up to $6. But how are we supposed to sell bacon when it's costing us so much money? You've probably noticed something weird going on with the supply chain, too. Suddenly, you just can't buy the stuff you want. Book publishers are having trouble getting paper. Car companies can't buy computer chips. Builders are having trouble getting lumber. Container ships in port are waiting for days to be unloaded. And everybody's back to hoarding toilet paper. But here's what's strange about these shortages. There's actually a glut of goods entering the country. And chances are, whatever you're waiting for is somewhere in boxes like these. One of these containers can hold 10,000 pairs of sneakers, 200 queen-size mattresses, 70 giant flat-screen TVs. So 95% of consumer goods come into the United States in these very containers. Beth Rooney is the deputy director of the Port Department of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Those big container ships, how many of these are they carrying? Anywhere between nine and 16,000 of these boxes at a time. In this pile is how many? A couple hundred. <laughs> She's in a perfect position to explain the first part of the supply chain crisis. As the pandemic hit various parts of the globe, factories overseas shut down. When production began to ramp up, we then saw a significant increase in cargo volume. We are all seeing about a 30% increase in our cargo activity year over year. Even better, or worse, the holidays are coming. Of course, we're also experiencing Christmas. So if the goods are not here in the port by mid-September, they're generally not on the shelves for Christmas. Okay, so if there's no shortage of goods, then where's the shortage? The underlying cause of all of this is actually a huge increase in demand. Yossi Sheffi is the director of MIT's Center for Transportation and Logistics. And yes, that's a container in his office hallway. People did not spend during the pandemic, and then all the government help came. Trillions of dollars went to household, so they order stuff. They order more and more stuff. And the, the whole global markets were not ready for this. So wait, there's plenty of goods and plenty of people who want to buy them. So where's the problem? Here's a hint, trucks. I think our drivers are heroes. Uh, they, they didn't have a work from home option, right? <laughs> and so the country needed food, the country needed cleaning supplies, the country needed medicine. They really kept this whole country moving. Mark Rourke is the president and CEO of Schneider, the country's third largest trucking and logistics company. I order something, comes to America on a container ship, can you outline the steps to get it to my door? Well, the first thing we have to do is get that international box off the vessel into the port, and then we need a trucker to come into that port and bring that generally to another warehouse. And then we need another driver to come in and then move that across the country or wherever its destination is, a distribution center. And it sounds like truckers are sort of key to all of that. Just about everything that you touch, everything you buy or consume has been at one point or another on a truck, for sure. But the national labor shortage plays a role in the supply chain crisis too, especially when it comes to truck drivers. How short are we of what we would need to handle this huge swell? Well, for every order Schneider is accepting today, we could do one more that we can't. So you've got half the person power you, you really could use. I could use right now, absolutely. 
So there's our problem, an unbelievably perfect storm. A huge wave of stuff coming into the country, a huge wave of people who want to buy it, and a hopelessly overwhelmed transportation system that wasn't ready for either one. Now, let me do the Oreo Back at his diner, Tony Pertessis is busy keeping his customers happy and waiting for the supply chain nightmare to end. Is this a minor inconvenience or is it like a losing sleep situation? Listen, I've lost sleep a lot. As long as I try my best, I go out fighting, there's nothing I can do. That's all up to God. But MIT's Yossi Sheffi thinks that there may be light at the end of the tunnel. When are things going to be normal again? I would say without government intervention, it will be at the end of the second quarter next year. But the prices will still be high. And maybe we'll emerge with some wisdom, too. We're getting so used to the plenty that we kind of lose perspective. And if you didn't get the right color of sneakers and your son or daughter doesn't have the exact brand and they have to get another brand, live with it. It's not the end of the world, maybe even good for you. And now you've learned about the supply chain. And now you learn about the supply chain. (laughs) The Supreme Court gaveled in its new term this past week. And on this year's docket, one of the most divisive issues of our time. Here's Rita Braver on the battle over Roe v. Wade. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for Welcome to the front lines of the abortion conflict. It is wrong to kill someone. EMW Women's Surgical Center in Louisville is one of just two clinics in Kentucky that provides abortions. 3,000 women come here for those services each year, and every one of them must run a gauntlet of protesters. This is not health care. This is killing human beings. Dr. Ernest Marshall co-founded the clinic. This practice has been running since 1980, which is approximately 41 years. He says there's a simple reason he offers women abortions. You can never be equal if you can't control your reproduction. But Marshall says over the years, like many states, Kentucky has greatly limited abortion and increased restrictions. For example, a woman who wants to end her pregnancy must undergo an ultrasound with the doctor required to turn the volume up. It's crazy that we have to turn on the heartbeat and uh, allow the patient to hear it and tell her to cover her ears if she doesn't want to hear it. It's just very traumatizing to the patient. But another Louisville Women's Center is also on the front lines. Beside You for Life, started by a group of local churches, tries to convince women not to have abortions. Our mission is to share the hope and support of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are affected by unplanned pregnancy. Monica Henderson is the center's director. A lot of women choose abortion because they feel like they don't have a choice. April Hickman has been coming here for a counseling prayer. God is the most just judge. And other support services since 2013. She says she arrived pregnant, jobless, and desperate, fearing her only alternative might be an abortion. What did you realize about yourself? (sighs) That I was capable. Was it hard? Yes, very hard. But through them, I am a better mom. Hickman says Beside You helped her get baby supplies for her daughter Marley, now eight as well as access to government daycare and housing programs. I was still this broken person, but having her just, it made me do better. She's the most amazing, she's the most, one of the amazing people that I know. Hickman now has a job and two younger children. But the folks at EMW Women's Surgical Center have also made a difference in the lives of women like Courtney Bennett, a mother of one who last year was thrilled to learn that she and her partner were expecting a second child. Then tests revealed severe anomalies in the fetus. We knew that this was a confirmed diagnosis that we couldn't change. There was also a high risk of not being able to carry full term. At 15 weeks, they reluctantly determined an abortion was the only option for them. What was it like for you to have to come to this decision finally? There was no way around that it was the hardest decision ever. 
Yet she says she still remembers the shame that protesters tried to make her feel. So I understand that another individual would not necessarily make a decision to have an abortion. What I don't understand is that that individual would want to tell me that I don't have the freedom or the right to make the best decision for me. For the half century since it was handed down. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The ruling in the case of Roe versus Wade that abortion is protected by the Constitution's 14th Amendment right to privacy. Abortion is violent! Abortion is violent! My body, my choice! Has been the subject of demonstration and litigation. It is beyond divisive. It's inflammatory. Columbia University Law School professor Carol Sanger is a noted expert on abortion law. How common is abortion in America? One in four women will have an abortion sometime in their life. Sanger points out that most women who have abortions already have at least one child. But she says the Supreme Court never authorized an absolute right to abortion. What's the right that Roe versus Wade grants to women? The right to decide to terminate a pregnancy prior to viability. It is not abortion on demand. And so viability is simply, or not so simply, the ability of a fetus to live outside its mother's womb. There's no one moment that has ever been established where this happens. There's no one moment in time. And many abortion rights opponents argue that life starts at the moment of conception. A new and unique individual. Former Kentucky state legislator Adia Wushner is now executive director of Kentucky Right to Life. She's helped craft some of Kentucky's most stringent abortion laws, including one that will come before the U.S. Supreme Court this week on a procedural issue. So you just think that if a woman becomes pregnant, then she ha should have no choice but to bear the child? We act like bearing the child is a punishment, but, but we need for, to bear No, some women choose not to bear the child. The question here is, should a woman who doesn't want to bear a child have to bear that child? I believe that child has a right to life. There's not a hierarchy of rights or dignity or sanctity between the mother and the child. When you're talking about the child here, you're talking about the fetus. Yes. And now many experts believe that the three justices appointed by Donald Trump may help form a Supreme Court majority ready to overrule Roe versus Wade. They're either getting ready to overturn it or to limit it. Here's why. In December, the court will hear a Mississippi case that specifically argues that Roe should be overturned. Meanwhile, the justices refused to block a Texas law now making its way through the lower courts that allows any person to file a civil suit against anyone who helps provide most abortions. And if the court does overrule Roe versus Wade, individual states will have complete power to make abortion law. The legality of abortion is really um, at issue here. It's, it's at stake. Heather Gitnarek, an attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union of Kentucky, says her state is one of 11 that have so-called trigger laws on the books. If the Supreme Court were to reverse Roe, uh, Kentucky would immediately ban abortion in the state. Does it have an exception for the health of the mother or rape or incest or something else? No, this is a blanket across the board ban on abortion. No abortion. No abortion in Kentucky. Adia Wushner of Kentucky Right to Life. If you don't want your child, we will find pathways for adoption, but we're also making the choice for another life, and that's the life of the child. But abortion rights advocates predict that while wealthy women will travel to states that allow legal abortion, poorer women may resort to pre-1973 back alley solutions. And Dr. Ernest Marshall, who says he will have to close his clinic if Roe versus Wade is overturned, fears the worst for some of the one in four American women 
who choose abortion. One of my best friend's sister was pregnant and drank turpentine. And she was in high school and it destroyed her liver and she died from that. So these things will be revisited. Could there ever be a compromise on abortion in America? Professor Carol Sanger says it's unlikely. But if you think abortion is murder, there's no compromise on that. And if you think that the state doesn't have the right to tell you to have another child, there's no compromise on that view. Hillary Clinton can add a new entry to her resume. Mrs. Clinton has teamed up with one of our biggest authors, Louise Penny, to pen a frightening yet funny novel. Martha Teichner tells us about their unlikely collaboration. We were dreaming of, you know, going to exotic oh my God, places. That's true. Let's go to Jamaica. <laughs> we were going to go all, yes. all over the yeah. world and yeah, do our yeah. writing together. Yeah, yeah, we'll sit in some <laughs> resort somewhere in the Caribbean. COVID would deflate that balloon. But if you're wondering how Hillary Clinton happened to write a book, a thriller out Tuesday, with acclaimed Canadian mystery writer Louise Penny, here's how. This whole experience and this book arose out of our friendship. And our friendship arose out of someone who was a very good friend to both of us. And here's Hillary. That was my best friend from sixth grade, uh, a woman named Betsy, Betsy Johnson Ebeling. <laughs> they both loved Louise Penny's mysteries, eight of which have debuted at number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. So fast forward, I'm running for president in 2016, as you might remember, and, uh, oh. oh yeah, 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 it seems so long ago. This one's for you, Hill. When Ebeling was interviewed during the 2016 Democratic National Convention, one thing led to another. The interviewer is asking, well, so what do you do together? And she said, and you know, we read together, we read books. Well, what are you reading now? And Betsy goes, uh, well, we're reading the latest Louise Penny. Louise's publisher read this article and said, would you like to meet this woman who's a good friend of, of Hillary Clinton's? And Louise said yes. Betsy met Louise at a book event in Chicago. They instantly became great friends. And two weeks later, my husband, who had been suffering from dementia, passed away. And I was going through the notes of condolence, and there was one from you. Hillary's never met Michael. She's never met me. She's in the middle of the most vicious political fight of, of anyone's life. And she writes to a Canadian who can't even vote. We spoke to Hillary Clinton and Louise Penny in a studio overlooking New York's Javits Center, Clinton's election night headquarters. Our friendship came out of grief. When we met, you just lost the election, I just lost my husband. We were two women of a similar age who mm. knew what that felt like. Then, in 2019, their friend Betsy died of breast cancer. She just had a genius for friendship. So writing the, the book together, Clinton from her home in Chappaqua, New York, Penny from hers in Quebec, was therapy. State of Terror is published by St. Martin's Press and Simon & Schuster, a division of Viacom CBS. We wanted it to somehow incorporate Betsy. A character named Betsy Jameson is counselor to Secretary of State Ellen Adams, named for another of Clinton's friends, Ellen Tauscher, a former U.S. representative and diplomat who also died in 2019. We could not get together. Yeah. We, we, we operated over FaceTime and virtually. But their COVID-restricted collaboration was anything but sorrowful. I can't convey to you how much fun it was. Warning, you're about to see Hillary Clinton as you've probably never seen her before. When we FaceTimed, right? We were both in bed. It's like 7.30 at night. We were both in bed. But you know, one of the funny things is, I think that you did have on moose pajamas. Being, oh, I did. Being a Canadian in oh, the middle of winter. Pajamas. in so, moose flannel. Yeah, the moose flannel. Not to be a spoiler, that makes its way into the book. Yes, it does, but. Imagine a thriller in which the heroes are two middle-aged women. 
They showed their insecurities, their fears. We found out right away that Ellen Adams had her grooming issues. <laughs> I was Spanx. Yeah, that was, that was a little bit of personal experience. Yeah, oh my gosh, the hair, the hair again. Come on, people. The women characters in the book are consistently underestimated. I immediately thought of an article that I'd read the last few days about how Angela Merkel's superpower was she was underestimated. For 16 years as Chancellor of Germany, that was the case. And, and you were I, underestimated. Well, you know, I think it kind of goes with the territory of being uh, a woman in a high public position. The plot of State of Terror is fiction, but not so far-fetched. This book started, really, out of a conversation that Louise and I had. I asked, what's your nightmare? Yeah. And you came up with three of them. Yes, I did. And, and we chose one, which mm -hmm. was nu said, nuclear. Yep. What if nukes got into the hands of terrorists, foreign and domestic? The book is loaded with insider stuff Clinton knows from experience. It was fun to come up with, you know, scenes. Obviously, Washington, D.C., the White House, Situation Room, off the Oval record. Office, Off the Record, the bar uh, in the Hay Adams. Caricatures of political figures on its walls and on its very collectible coasters. There's a president by the name of Eric Dunn, the previous president, whose administration is described on page three as nearly criminally incompetent. And he lives in Palm Beach. Mm, interesting. <laughs> oh. A lot of people live in Palm Beach. Have they you noticed do. that? They yeah, do. a lot of people. Are yeah. we supposed to read that as Donald Trump? No, but I think we're supposed to realize that there are characteristics of real people that yeah. we obviously learned from, that we incorporated. Fans of Louise Penny's Chief Inspector Gamache Mysteries will be happy to discover character crossovers and other little Easter eggs hidden in the text. There and, are some in-jokes. And you know what, we, there are. we, we would there, love for true. people, if, when they read it, to kind of find the in-jokes. But mostly, Hillary Clinton and Louise Penny would like them to read their book for what it is, a dead serious cautionary tale and a tribute to friendship on and off the page. This is a wake-up call for, for anybody who cares about America, the world. I feel very proud of this book for doing that and and for being entertaining at the same time and having a heart and having a soul. I'm very, very pleased with what we've done. When's the movie? <laughs> Who plays us? We're, we're not in it. We're not in it. We're oh, not how in did it. we write ourselves out of it? <laughs> An epic matchup between your two favorite teams and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge, now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. It's a yard sale where everything must go. And for a good cause, Steve Hartman explains. 14-year-old Marjorie Gonzalez is about to go shopping for a homecoming dress. Let's shop! But that isn't her mother. Susan Thompson Gaines is more like a godmother, a fairy godmother, who just magically appeared in Marjorie's life moments ago. Just came out of nowhere. Out of nowhere to conjure up a dress for the ball. All right. Like all fairy godmothers, Susan's wish-granting process begins with rags. This ugly Christmas sweater. Old clothes, racks of them, mixed with a dash of footwear, a pinch of gold, and a dollop of just about everything else. Each part of the potion donated by Susan's neighbors here in Arlington, Virginia. So many people helped. It's everyone in the community now. Like, every inch of our space was covered in treasures. And then all of it sold in a giant yard sale. This was her third annual. And here's where the story gets good. In the coming months, Susan will use every penny of the profits, more than $12,000 this year, 
to fund random acts of kindness throughout her community. In the past, she has bought donuts for nurses and left flowers at veterans' graves. She has delivered presents for Santa and thrown a beach party for dementia patients. Really, hardly a day goes by that Susan doesn't do something because she firmly believes that kindness begets kindness. This mission has taken over your life. It totally has. Once you start looking, there are opportunities everywhere. <gasps> like the high school girl who couldn't afford a homecoming dress. Susan let Marjorie pick out a favorite, along with shoes, jewelry, everything but the Prince Charming. It's made me overall a more happy person. So you picked up something from the yard sale too? I did. I picked up a lot of things, but that probably is the most important, yes. A brand new box of purpose. Best yard sale find ever. Oh, Papa's got a brand new shoe. A life of broken heels got you down. That's Billy Porter as Lola, his Tony Award-winning role in the Broadway musical Kinky Boots. He's a fashion icon who wears many hats, actor, singer, dancer, director. And he tells our Seth Doan he owes it all to dreaming the impossible. The calls I'm getting now is for me to be Billy, the Billy that was rejected for decades. They want me to show up in my dresses. They want me to show up in my gowns. They want me to show up in my wings. You know. Does it surprise you? Yes, it surprises me. I spent the first 20 years of my career trying to be masculine enough so I could eat. Shall we? <laughs> he has an Emmy, a Grammy, and a Tony, but long before he was turning heads on the red carpet, Billy Porter was attracting the sort of attention he did not want. I was born queer. I was born gay. And I was effeminate. Andy says he was beaten up repeatedly by his classmates. And it was always the torment like having to go to school every day. What's going to happen today until fifth grade talent show? And people said, wow. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, you know, leave him alone. He can sing. That was my cue. I was like, oh, shoot. Well, let me sing. Let me keep singing so I can stop getting beat. <laughs> He's not stopped singing, whether in leading roles on Broadway, in the movies. Okay, I gotta go sing. Or in this recording studio in his hometown of Pittsburgh. Starts today, tears away. Where he'd returned to direct a movie and was finishing up his pop single, Children. That song will be released this week. His memoir, Unprotected, comes out later this month. And we found a man grateful to be juggling the demands of stardom. I believe in walking through the doors that are open and kicking the other ones down. How is it to be having all of this happen at the same moment? I've prepared a long time for this, and so I'm ready. I'm 52, and I'm grounded in ways that allow for me to be able to enjoy this. Of those industry prizes, he was awarded the Emmy most recently. God bless you all. The category is love, y'all, love. For his role in Pose on Netflix. The category is luscious, femme queen, body. In which he plays a flamboyant MC who rules trans and queer nightlife in 1980s New York City. It's not the type of role he could have imagined as a kid who grew up in a religious family and was sent to a psychologist. He uh, said to my mother in front of me, oh, Billy's fine. He just, you know, you just need to get a man around the house, teach him to be more of a man. That's all. So then fast forward to within a year, my mother had met and married my stepfather, who then proceeded to molest me from the time I was seven to 12. And in my mind, I thought those were my man lessons. Because that was, right? That's what he's here for. Did you realize you were 
being abused? No. I didn't realize it was abuse until I was uh, in my late 20s. You say this story now with such strength. I've had 40 years to work through this. You know, it's a devastating trauma. I went to school here. He found a safe haven at a Pittsburgh performing arts high school. It saved my life. I've been able to use my art to heal my trauma. Searching for bigger stages, he saved up to travel to auditions, and after a number of appearances in Broadway shows, he became a star as the drag diva Lola in Kinky Boots, earning in 2013 both that Tony and the Grammy. After having been told that my queerness and my femininity would be my liability, Kinky Boots happened. I never felt more powerful and more grounded in my life up until that point as Lola in high-heeled platform boots. We are actually the same height in real life, but I like being able to see when I... Right over me. <laughs> Those platform boots are still a staple. But you're not wearing this to the grocery store. I'm not wearing this to the grocery store, no. And his style has become part of his signature. I didn't know that my fashion choices could start a cultural conversation. What do you think that conversation is? You know, this gender attachment that we have to clothing. Women wearing men's clothes is fine, that's powerful. A man puts on a dress and it's disgusting. And you want to change that? Yeah, what are we saying? He says that being fabulous and serious should not be viewed as mutually exclusive. How do we do that? Hi. Porter's message resonates, and we found his fans want more than just a selfie. Come here, yes. Please, I love you so much. I love you back. Oh, I love you so much. But for someone who's credited with authenticity, Porter had been living with a secret since being diagnosed HIV positive in 2007. It was devastating. Um, it really almost took me out. It really did. And you kept it quiet. And I kept it quiet for 14 years. Because? Shame. You know, I'm of a certain age. I was supposed to know better. How did this happen? You're HIV positive. I'm sorry. But when that role in Pose came along, playing an HIV-positive character, he recognized yet another opportunity to find some relief through his art. I made the decision to let my character of Pray Tell stand in proxy for Billy's healing. And this spring, he revealed his diagnosis. Here's the information. Ain't no secret. I'm fully transparent and I've laid everything bare. Art is healing. Billy Art Porter finds strength in controlling the narrative and freedom in being and celebrating who he is. The most important role to him now is to inspire. What this moment has taught me is to dream the impossible, because the impossible is possible. This is possible. If you told me in 1982, that my black church sissy ass would be famous for being a sissy, I would have laughed in your face. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can just convey so much just with a look, a raised eyebrow. She's old, bitch. I've been doing this a long time, honey. <laughs> I ain't new to this. <laughs> An instrument instrumental in the birth of rock and roll is about to go on sale. Anthony Mason talks with the son of Les Paul about the guitar that electrified the music world. Lot number one in what Christie's calls the exceptional sale, an auction later this week, is one of the most influential instruments of the past century. So where did your dad keep this? He kept this in the basement. Open it up for me. Oh. This is Les Paul's number one Gibson Gold Top, the first approved prototype his son Gene says 
of his father's now iconic electric guitar. Now, let me do this very delicately. Yeah. That be it. Just stunning. It is stunning. It's absolutely beautiful. And the next part, the stunning of how it looked, is how he played it. The guitar made its TV debut on the CBS program Omnibus back in 1953. What did this guitar mean to him? Everything. This, this was his crowning achievement. This was 30 years of experiments, of his dream, and his obsession with getting Gibson to make it. Gibson rolled out its first Les Paul in 1952. It was soon embraced by the guitar gods of rock and roll. The Eagles, Joe Walsh. Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page. And the Stones' Keith Richards all played a Les Paul. It's one of those perfect rock and roll machines. Carrie Keene of Christie's. It has the ability to be driven at very high volume with a distortion level that is appealing and wonderful. Les Paul, who died in 2009 at 94, was a guitar god himself. In the 50s, with his then wife, Mary Ford, he had 28 hit records, including his signature tune, How High the Moon. His quest to create a hard-body electric guitar had started when he was growing up in Wisconsin, when a fan passed him a note after a performance. He said, I could hear your voice fine, I could hear your harmonica fine, but he said, I couldn't hear your guitar. And that bothered your father? Well, I don't think it bothered him, I think it lit him up. <laughs> One of Paul's early iterations he called the log. A door hinge. Mm -hmm. A string, string and a block of wood. That's it. He showed it to Jim Axelrod for this program in 2002. This is like the printing press or the Model T? It's the beginning. It was hardly his only invention. Paul also pioneered multi-track recording, as he demonstrated with Mary Ford on Omnibus with Alistair Cook in 53. Who's the voices? That's Mary. I mean, they're all Mary's voices. The National Inventors Hall of Fame. Paul is the only artist inducted into both the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Inventors Hall of Fame. Was he as proud of being an inventor as he was of being a musician? Being a musician is why he invented. As Les Paul himself put it, love to play, love to entertain, love to make people laugh. Let make them happy. Christie's has put a $100,000 to $150,000 estimate on the instrument, but Gene Paul wonders how you value history. What do you hope happens to this guitar? I'm going to miss it, but I miss Dad more. <laughs> he said to me one time, he said, do you realize how many light bulbs Edison made before he got it? And that kind of rings in my mind. What's Edison's first bulb worth? Yeah. That's how much it meant to Dad. It's been quite a year for Olivia Rodrigo. Record-breaking hits, multiple awards, and an invite to the White House. Even though, as her hit song reminds us, she's barely old enough to drive. Tracy Smith caught up with her for the record. I got my driver's license last week, just like we always talked about. She's the girl who turned pain into platinum. Olivia Rodrigo is a perfect storm of talent, charm, and ambition. 
who seemingly came out of nowhere this year and exploded onto the national stage. Ladies and gentlemen, Olivia Rodrigo! For starters, her very first album, Sour, which debuted last spring at number one, was hailed by critics as revelatory. Four of the tracks hit the top ten, and this one, Driver's License, was for a time the most listened to streaming song on the planet. You said forever, now I drive alone past your street. At 18, 18, Olivia Rodrigo is on a run most singer-songwriters can only dream about. And it all started at her childhood home in Southern California. You could barely write. In the bedroom where she wrote so many of her songs. I mean, every song on Sour, or at least most of the songs, are these cauldron of emotions set to this beautiful music. Where does that come from? I've always been obsessed with heartbreak songs. I wrote heartbreak songs before I'd ever had a boyfriend, honestly, and I've just always been obsessed with that feeling, and I think there's nothing sort of more painful as like a human being than that feeling of loss. Seems she was always a performer. Thank you, I love you. The only child of a teacher and a therapist. Olivia Rodrigo was comfortable enough at age seven to sing in front of a crowd. And at 13, she wound up in the Disney TV orbit. No one at this school gets us. Are we too weird? First on Bizardvark. I'm just that talented. Then High School Musical the Musical, the series. I think there's something really cool about being like a young, you know, 13-year-old girl on a set and having to emote in front of a bunch of people that you don't know. I think that got me really comfortable with my emotions and expressing those emotions. And I think in hindsight, it's probably one of the reasons why I, you know, am so comfortable emoting in my songwriting. And I know perfect, but never felt Music, she says, has become her emotional safety valve, heavy on the emotional. And few of her songs express that better than Driver's License. A wrenching lament from a teenage girl who got her license at the same time she lost the love of her life. You said forever, now I drive alone past your street. Got my driver's license last week, just like we always talked about. So like something like that. Gives me chills. Did it give you chills the first time you did that? I just remember writing it and feeling like it actually was like, like a page ripped out of my diary because it was so intimate and vulnerable. Wait, what am I listening to? <laughs> Driver's License by Olivia Rodrigo, man. In fact, the song seemed to strike a chord with all ages and even inspired a sketch on Saturday Night Live. She says the song is rooted in real heartache about a real breakup, but it's not who she is. Was there a part of you that thought, maybe I don't want to share that with the world? I just think there was no other option for me. I had to write it. I had to write it for me. I had to, like, get it out. I think you'd, like, feel sick if you, like, kept all of that in. But, you know, really at the core of it, I had to do it for myself. How dark did it get for you? I mean, I, I was very sad. I was a 17-year-old girl going through my first real heartbreak, but I think a lot of people also think, listening to my music, that I'm really, like, sad, depressed person and that couldn't be the farther from the truth. You know, definitely not at all, you know, cr crying on my bedroom floor all the time. But, uh, yeah, it, it's fun to write about stuff like that, you know what I mean? Like, if I was just writing about how, you know, it's happy going and getting my iced latte every morning, like, nobody would listen to it. It wouldn't be interesting. Joining us in the briefing room is actress and multi-platinum recording singer-songwriter Olivia Rodrigo. The spotlight on Olivia Rodrigo is a bit brighter now. I am beyond honored and humbled. She went to the White House in July to support the vaccination effort. Youth vaccination. And has been on her share of red carpets of late. But she seems remarkably centered. And for that, she credits her strong relationship with her parents and her therapist.
When did you start therapy? I hadn't really started going since, until I was like 16, and that was a really big life-changing moment, and I've learned so much about myself. Was that something that you said, I need to go do this? Yeah, yeah, it was. But, you know, I, I think there's sometimes a stigma around it, too, like I was saying. You know, sometimes people are like, oh, you don't need that. You have so much. Your life is so great. What's your, what, what are your problems? And I think that's definitely a thing that sometimes older people can do to younger people, too, is kind of trivialize what they're going through just because, you know, it feels like, ah, they're fine. They're just kids. We'll get through it. But right, it feels real. Teenaged. Yeah, yeah. But it feels so real when you're in it, and it's so valid. And just because it's not, you know, an adult's problem or you don't have to pay taxes yet or whatever doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. A few years ago, Olivia Rodrigo could only stand outside the Grammys as a fan. She's now earned a seat down front. This song, Traitor, is only her latest top 10 hit from a teenager who reminds us all how to take the pain and turn it into something powerful. You betrayed me And I know that you'll never feel sorry And we're coming up with those lines first and being like, oh, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. After you write a song, there's like no greater euphoria than that. Feeling like, oh, I accomplished something and I did really good and I did my best and I took these like messy feelings and hopefully made something beautiful out of it. Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.